welcome back to another episode of Chalak where I'll be looking into the evolution of ICM. I hope that you enjoy today's episode and if you do, please be sure to follow the podcast on any of the podcast platforms such as Anchor, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I'm extremely sorry for the long wait for this podcast episode, but here it is. There's lots to dive in today, so let's jump right in. So last week, we looked at Indian music in the Vedic ages. We learned about the different traditions that existed back then, and we also looked at music's place in Vedic society. Today, we'll continue right where we left off, which is around the end of the Vedic era, around 500 BC. While there is no exact linear chronological development of Indian classical music over time, we can start to see some glimpses of current day Hindustani Sangeet, which is very exciting. So, it was around 500 BC when Sage Valmiki composed the first Indian epic, Ramayan. It was written in the form of shlokas, a poetic form in Indian culture. For you to get a better understanding of what a shloka is, I will recite one for you. This shloka is from the 12th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. Arjuna uvacha evam satatayuktaye bhaktastvam paryupasate ye japyaksharam avyaktan tesham ke yoga vittamaha Shri Bhagavan uvacha maya veshyamano yeman nitya yukta upasate it is from the Ramayan that many academics can assume that music played an important role in Indian society. This is because in the Ramayan epic, there is an overwhelming amount of references made to music. There are so many musical metaphors that it is almost evident that the clear definition of music or Sangeet had been established by then. For example, when Lord Rama describes a kingdom to his brother Lakshman, he refers to the lute-like resonance of the bees, the rhythmic croaking of the frogs, and the mridang-like sounds of the clouds. If this wasn't enough evidence to show the importance of music in ancient Indian society, Lord Ram himself is an expert in the classical music of the time, or in Gandharva Sangeet. Gandharva Sangeet is also known as Marga Sangeet. Now, what is Marga Sangeet? Well, after I did some research, I found that Marg Sangeet was a very pure type of classical music. Early Marg songs were Shiv Stuti, or songs in praise of Lord Shiva. So, you can imagine that Marg Sangeet was an extremely sacred kind of music, and therefore it was well regulated. Marg Sangeet was not very flexible. It had strict guidelines and it had strict rules. To recap, Marg Sangeet had three important features. The first feature was that it was created and spread by Lord Brahma and other important deities. The second feature was that it was not meant for entertainment. And the third feature was that it was presented before gods to please them. And after even more research, I was able to discover that it wasn't just Lord Brahma who knew a lot about music at the time. The knowledge of music was vast. Even Ravan, the demon leader was proficient in music and Sugriva, the monkey leader, was also very musically knowledgeable. There are also many technical terms that were used in Ramayan, which once again show the widespread knowledge of music in the general population as well. Musical terms such as tal or rhythm, matra or beat, and lay or speed were used frequently. And it is here 
we start to see a shift from the Indian classical music in the Vedic times. The fact that these terms are included with no real definition shows the knowledge society had at that time of music. Music's definition had started to shift in that it became a more pronounced aspect of society. So now we know what Marg Sangeet is and its relevance to society. But you may still be wondering, what does this have to do with Indian classical music today? Well, the idea is that the different modes of making music in the ancient times sort of combined to create what we know as ICM today. So Marg Sangeet was one mode of making music, and there were other modes of making music at the time. And one of them was Patya Sangeet. Now, this episode has a lot to talk about because we're not only covering Ramayan, but also Mahabharata. The Mahabharata was a great epic written around 400 BC by sage Vyas and it is around a whopping 24,000 shlokas long. The Mahabharata uses the term Gandharva instead of just Sangeet, so it consistently refers to a specific kind of music. The study of music at that time was called Gandharva Shastra. The people who practiced Gandharva music were called, to no one's surprise, Gandharvas. Gandharvas and Apsaras were experts in singing, playing musical instruments and dancing. In Hinduism, Gandharvas and Apsaras were considered almost higher than human beings, like celestial beings. Gandharvas were also depicted as singers in the courts of gods. It's also important to know that the notes had changed from the Vedic times. They weren't Udat or Anudat anymore. The notes were now Swaraj, Rishab, Gandhar, Madhyam, Panchama, Dhaivat and Nishad. The shortened version of these names are what we use today. The names of these notes had been clearly mentioned in Mahabharata, showing the development of important concepts in classical music. So now we know the development of music so far in the Hindu context. But it is important to remember that Hinduism was not the only religion present in society at the time. There was Buddhism, as well as Jainism, and both of these religions provide different insights into music at the time. So, let's start off with Buddhism. Jatakas are stories written around 300 BC about the previous births of the Buddha, or the Enlightened One. And they describe Buddhist monks singing and dancing to instruments such as the Veena. They have a great deal of musicology embedded within them. There are also many Buddhist structures and sculptures that are a source of information on music. Even though music was seen as a distraction in ancient Buddhist philosophy, theologians can confirm that music really did flourish based on the sculptures found in places such as Sachi. How about Jainism? Well, after historians and archaeologists studied Jain sources like the Sthanam Sutra, they were able to draw many parallels with a particular Vedic text called the Naradiya Shiksha. The Naradiya Shiksha is a text that deals with the pronunciation of words and phonetics in ICM. However, Jain sources are not similar in every aspect. One text lists 63 instruments in 18 groups. So overall, Jain texts cover more things in music than Sanskrit texts and also include music that was more folk-based. So now we are moving on to an important part of our journey to understanding the development of Indian music. I'm talking about a certain book, a treatise if you will. I'm talking about the Natya Shastra. Now this book was mainly devoted to the study of drama, but we can look at it to understand more about music as well. When this treatise was written between 200 BC and 200 AD, so the timeline's a little vague, 
Theater, dance, and music were so intertwined that they also depended on the other to function. That's why I think that the Natya Shastra refers to them together. He was the first person to draw up the rules for theater, of which music was a major part of. So, the Natya Shastra was written by Bharat Muni, who was a well-known ancient Indian musicologist and theater expert. So, according to Bharat Muni, there were three things that, in a proper combination, give rise to a certain ras. Those three things are vibhav, or the thing that stimulates you. Then there's anubhav, or what you experience. And lastly, there's vyabhicharibhavs, or the transitory, short-lived emotional feelings that differ from person to person. And it is a combination of these three aspects that allows a certain aesthetic or a certain ras to become really pronounced. The Natya Shastra is so comprehensive that it also looks into the cultural life of India, and it is said to be the foundation on which Indian philosophical thinking rests. The Natya Shastra has intrigued many people in India over the last 2000 years and has provided a framework for the arts. Okay, so at this point, it's around 300 AD. And this is where we reach what historians now like to call the Gupta period. The Gupta period was a time in Indian history that was well known for literary excellence. It's often described as the golden age of culture, arts, and learning in ancient India. There was a famous poet and writer called Kalidas, who wrote many plays during this time. Kalidas has so many references to music and dance, and this really shows the importance that music and dance held in his life. There are many Gupta kings, such as Harsha Vardhan, who are singers themselves, so the significance of music was in kings and in royalty as well. These four arenas are 1. Sacrificial areas 2. Temple precincts 3. Stages and platforms and 4. Princely courts And it is here that we start to see the tradition of Indian music flourish in four kinds of areas or spaces in society. The type of music, its pitch and volume, etc. was largely determined by the place the performance was happening. So first off, there are the sacrificial halls. Mantras were mainly the kind of music associated with sacrificial halls. The mantras were recited and could also be sung. Before singing, one of the most important considerations was the appropriateness and pronunciation for the given circumstance or ritual. Musical instruments were used, but the voice was always the primary aspect. The instrument's role was always secondary. Then, there's the temple, precincts, or spaces. In these spaces, echoes and reverberations were felt. The effect of instrument and vocal quality were more pronounced here than in other arenas. So it was these qualities that were developed. A number of musical instruments were used in this type of performance. There was a higher capacity of these instruments to generate different kinds of sounds, which then allowed a greater number of genres to be performed in these temple areas. The inner temple precinct is not the only area where the music was performed in temples. The courtyard of the temple allowed another kind of music. This kind was called samaj. What's important is that visiting artists were allowed to perform here, and this increased the diversity of music being performed and it paved the way for yet another format of music to evolve called Ghatanibandhan. An important feature of Ghatanibandhan music was that there was, a co there was collective dance and music. Another area where music was performed was the stage or the platform. 
there were many group performances held here. Bharat Muni laid the rules and principles for the kutup or the orchestra for this kind of performance. Usually there were two singers and around 9 to 11 instruments, so a lot more than other spaces. Lastly, we have the princely courts. Performances in here were the most organized out of the four arenas. All kinds of music were performed in these courts. Delicate effects and small nuances could really be articulated and heard by the audience. There was a better interaction between the stage performer and the audience, and naturally, these kinds of performances were displayed in front of those who were in the higher echelons of society. And that's where we'll finish off for today. I hope that you've truly enjoyed this episode, and if you do, please don't forget to support the podcast. I hope you have a great day and rest of the week, and goodbye for now.